Okay, so can we have a nice welcome for Heather Kamira. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so, eight days away. Anyone else nervous? Eight days away. Christmas is upon us. Okay, who here has actually gotten all their Christmas shopping done? Oh, look at this. Ah, oh, we got some planners in the room. Okay, who has not yet started <laughs> yeah, their Christmas shopping yet? Yeah, okay, you're my people. Okay. <laughs> oh, this is obviously a time of preparation and anticipation, right? We have kids that are counting down to Christmas. My daughter has probably three different advent calendars in our house, and she knows exactly how many days Christmas is away, and she's anxiously awaiting the presents under the tree and, and all that Christmas is. And, and we as parents and, and as, as people are planning, right, we're, we're trying to get ahead of the game, and we're trying to get everything done before Christmas is here. And, and, and this is, this is kind of what this season is, isn't it? Advent is actually that. It's that preparation and anticipation. And Advent is those four weekends leading up to Christmas. And the English word Advent comes from the old Latin word adventus, which means approach or arrival. And, and it is. It's that time of, of expectation, but not just not just of gifts under the tree like my daughter, but it's of expectation of that, remembering that first, that first gift that we ever got, right? Which is Jesus himself, born in that major. And now our series right now for Advent is called Inbreaking. It's a pretty epic kind of title, right? Inbreaking. But when I think of this word, I think of like, like being startled, because I'm one of those kind of people that if somebody sneezes right next to me, I literally scream and jump out of my skin, and I hate it. I hate that that's how I am, but I am. And, and when I think of Advent, I don't think of an in-breaking, but, but realistically, it wasn't this peaceful, serene scene like we, we usually think of it as. We know of these stoic characters that are you know, represented in our nativity scenes, right? Those little characters that are forever going, ah. Oh, you know, like, and, and for all time, you know, they're just sitting there just forever peacefully, you know, standing. That's not the, the realistic picture of what Advent or what Christmas really looked like. People were getting startled all over the place. The real Christmas story, people were getting startled, not just because there was an angel and they'd never seen one before, and I'm sure they're very intimidating and slightly scary looking. They're always saying, do not be afraid. You know, so maybe it was that, but it was also the message that they were speaking, right? The message that they were proclaiming was shocking. It was really shocking to the people in that day. But what we know to be true is that it was shocking for the entire framework of our world. It shook things up when Jesus came. It shook things up. The beginning of the end had begun. The battle lines had been drawn and the key forces had been notified. Nothing would ever be the same again because Jesus came to earth. It was a not so silent night that night when Jesus was born in that stable. I think of Satan's kingdom, his reign and rule over the earth starting to crumble with every cry in that manger, every little baby cry in that manger that night. 1 John 3, 8 says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus is coming to reclaim, 
Reclaim what was rightfully his, right? Reclaim us. And so in our series so far, we've actually, we've covered quite a few things. We've covered the power of hope, right? We've covered the power of joy, the power of peace. And, and today we're looking at the very motivation for why Jesus came in the first place, the power of love. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we just invite you here and I pray, Lord, that you would just give us a fresh revelation of what, what Christmas was really like, what that season of your arrival was like, God. I pray that uh, you would teach us something today that expands our, our, our view of, of that very familiar, familiar story. God, would you come and would you speak to us today? I pray that you would help us to let our, our defenses down, to let our, let our burdens go, just lay them at your feet. And I pray, God, you would clear our minds to help just hear from you. Lord, tune us into what you're saying to us today, God. We want to hear from you today. God, I pray your, your spirit would come, you would just bless my words in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this story is obviously a story that we've heard many times before. We're going to open up to the book of Luke, the first chapter, and we're looking at verses 26 through 38. And if, if you need a Bible, we have some on either side of the stage. And we have some in the back as well. You feel free to take that home with you as well as a gift from us. So I'm going to read this um, familiar passage. It's, it's just such a great one. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I'm a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So, on the Holy, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who is said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the ser God's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Now this, this passage here is, is often referred to as the Annunciation, the announcement by the angel Gabriel to Mary. And we can break this story up kind of into two parts. And this is what I want to look at today is, is the message that Gabriel gave and then the response that, that Mary had to this message. And then also just what this, this kind of picture, this story really means to us today. So the message of love breaking in. Now, when I say love here, I'm not, I'm not talking like Gabriel came and had this warm and fuzzy message to, to give to Mary. This was, a, this was actually a proclamation, an announcement of a person, a person and what he came to do. And this is what we read in verse 31 through 33. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. 
This, this love, this, this message about love breaking in is really just about Jesus, Jesus breaking in. And, and his name actually is more of an Anglicized, Anglicized version of the Greek, Greek name um, Jesus, which itself is a, is a version of what the angel actually said to Mary, which he said, you should call his name Yeshua, uh, which means Yahweh saves or Lord is my savior. And just think about what, what kind of impact that would have had on Mary. I mean, this is an astounding announcement. And sometimes I forget this. I forget that this gospel message was just as much for Mary as it was for the rest of the world. Think of what Mary must have been thinking, how excited she was, not just at the news that she would be pregnant, but that the long-awaited Savior was coming that he would be here soon. Think of the expect think about how pregnant she would have been with expectation for a, for her savior more before even she was pregnant with the savior Jesus. I mean this must have been news that just resonated inside of her something that her people had longed and waited for for a long time. But, but this, this gift, this message was not just about a person, Jesus. It was about also a different kind of love. What she was hearing was very different than what she had known before about love. And it says a lot to us as well. John 3.16, it's a verse we all, we all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What we know and what we've heard in the series is that Jesus brings hope and that he brings peace and that he brings joy, but what brought him here was love. Jesus might be the reason for the season, but love is the reason why he came in the first place. So what is this? What are we talking about when we say love? And, and I, I think it's, it's worth touching on because it is such an overused word, Right? When you hear the word love, you're kind of like, oh, cheesy. You know, it's almost like overly used to the point of like being sentimental. It's just kind of like, oh, you know, really, what do you mean, right? I mean, because really, we can love potato chips and, and we can love God all in the same sentence. We can love our wife and we can love the Buckeyes all in the same sentence. And that's not the same, you know? <laughs> uh, there's a lot of times we use this word and we overly use this word, but, but the Greeks had a, a one-up on us. They had four words for the word love or for the concept of love. And I think it's worth looking at. Uh, storge, which is one of their first, the, one of the ones that, that mean love, but it's a family love or affection. So that's the kind of love that you have for your mom, storge. Phileo, now that's friendship love. So that's the kind of love and affection you have towards your best friend. And then there's eros, there's being in love. And that's the kind of love you have towards your spouse, right? And then there's agape love, and that's divine gift love. And that's the kind of love that God feels toward us. That's the kind of love that he pours into us that we don't have in and of ourselves. And this is what C.S. Lewis says, divine gift love in a person enables him to love what is not naturally lovable, like lepers or criminals or enemies, or the sulky, or the needy, or the superior, and the sneering, is to love them too. Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, distinguishes between two types of love. He says there's human love, and then there's divine love. 
And he says this, the love of God does not find, oh, there you are, I love you, it creates that which is pleasing to it. But love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. And what he's saying is there's always a cause and effect for human love. There's a cause and effect. Human love is drawn forth by the object of our love. We see something that we love, we see something that's beautiful, something attractive, and we say, wow, I just, oh, I love that person, right? I love them because, I love them because, just fill in the blank. I love them because they're great listeners, or I love them because they love God, or I love them because they're gorgeous, or they're handsome, or they have a great job and they make a lot of money, or that they're really kind, or that they treat me well. Human love is always elicited by the object of love. Because most of the time, there's something we get out of it, right? Now, divine love is totally different. Divine love is not elicited by the object at all. Divine love is simply given. Just simply given, regardless of the object. Because God gets nothing back. He initiates. He gave in first. He gave in first. And And just think about it. Why would the infinite God allow himself to be reduced to a helpless, vulnerable baby. Why would he do it? Not that way. Why would he do it that way? And let me say it this way. Just think of the times that you've argued with a good friend about something you've just, you can't let it go. Or maybe your husband or your wife or or someone that that you just get into those kind of arguments with and neither one of you can admit it, that that you're wrong. Neither one of you are going to, you know, budge an inch. You know, you're not going to drop your defenses at any point. And what you realize is as long as those defenses are up, that relationship starts to kind of suffer, doesn't it? Uh, But for the relationship to deepen and heal and come back, you have to admit. You have to give in. You have to make yourself vulnerable. But in the midst of fighting, let's say you realize, you know what, this is stupid. Like, whatever we're fighting about is just not worth it, right? It's just not worth it. And you realize, I want this relationship back. This relationship is actually worth more than me winning. And so you finally let down your shield and you let one of those verbal, bl- verbal um, blows just land. And, and not just that, which hurts in and of itself, but, but you actually admit that you might have a part to play in it, that, that you might be wrong. You actually admit you might be wrong. And that relationship stops deteriorating. It does. Because you've done this costly act for the sake of your relationship with that person. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus initiated He wanted us back so much that he let his defenses down. He let his defenses down. C.S. Lewis says this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. And if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, then give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. That's what happened at Christmas. God himself, the all-consuming fire, became a baby to become someone who could suffer, to be someone who could actually be hurt so that he could get near us, so that he could get near us. Think of Jesus carrying the cross and the people spitting on him and cursing him, and he's thinking the whole way, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for you. 
That's not the sweet Christmas bedtime story we're used to reading, but boy, when we understand this, when we grasp how loved we are, what, what Jesus did, the cost, how much it cost him to get near to us, it changes things for us. It changes things. We're able to let our defenses down. We're able to not have to fight for honor and respect at every turn. We don't always have to have our own back because he's got our back. And and we can start to move into relationships that are thriving and that are real and that are intimate. If you're lonely today and, and you are scared, I mean, because it is scary to be vulnerable, it takes courage to be vulnerable, then remember this Christmas story. Remember how Jesus himself became cosmically and absolutely vulnerable to get you back, to get you back. Just look at how loved and affirmed you are in Jesus. And, and I love this. I love that the reason why that you and I in this whole world can be loved at all and that are offered salvation is simply by grace. And grace is unmerited favor that has nothing to do with us, thank the Lord. Nothing to do with our performance and nothing to do with our goodness or our moral worth or, or our background or where we're born or what we look like or what color of our, this color of our skin is. It's just simply given. The biggest gift God gave so that we could receive. So first of all, we see this incredible message of love breaking in. And second, we see there's this response of love that Mary received. Oh, and she's just, this is just great. Just, just imagine for me what that scene must have been like. I mean, we, we're not told what Mary was doing at the time that Gabriel showed up. Uh, we don't know. We're pretty sure she wasn't like staring at the skies, waiting in expectation for an angel to come like visit her in there in little Nazareth. Um, but I'm sure it was very unexpected and, and very surprising. Um, I mean, she could have been doing what? I don't know, pressing olives, baking bread, <laughs> sleeping. I mean, just think about it. Like us in the break room at work and all of a sudden, boom, there's like an angel there. I mean, it's just like, it could happen at any moment, right? And that's encouraging to know that the kingdom of God can break in at any moment. And that is so, they're just those, those handfuls of heaven, right? That could be just thrown down on us at any moment, just simply by the grace of God. But on the other hand, let's look at the other characters. There's God and there's Gabriel. God wasn't looking over, you know, all kingdom come and <laughs> looking for a person who was worthy. He didn't say, oh, finally, finally, I have, after scouring the earth, I have discovered a person I can use. God bestows worthiness on us. God gives worth to the unworthy. God says, I have decided to show you love because I am love. So Mary is a model of love received, not of love deserved. Do you hear that? Not of love deserved. She's not the dispenser. She's the receiver. Mary is an empty vessel into which God poured his love and grace. She wasn't chosen as a reward for her goodness. Oh, it's so encouraging. Mary was shown grace as a gift to magnify the love of God, to glorify God, not her, but God. 
And I want to look at two of her, her responses just briefly today. First one we read is in Luke 1, 29, and, she's, and this is what it says. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Wondered. This word wondered. I want to look at this. It, it's not really a great translation of the original Greek. The original Greek literally means to take an audit. Any accountants in here? It's an accounting word. It really is. Mary was, was doing the hard work of kind of taking stock. She was adding things up. She was weighing things. She was reasoning in her mind. She was investigating. Uh, really what she was, she's like, am I seeing things? Am I seeing things? Is, is this real? What I'm seeing here real? Is this a dream? Were the olives I ate last night a little off? I mean, she was, she was really trying to, to figure this out. And it's the same kind of thing we would do, Right? I think a lot of times we think that, you know, these Old Testament or first century characters were just so unlike us. But really, that's what we would do too. Like I said, if you're in the break room and a big angel shows up, you're going to be like, okay, who's, who's pulling a prank on me? Like, what is going on here? You know, like, you're going to start reasoning and going, am I seeing things? Or is this really real? And what we don't really come to, we don't really think about is that Mary really struggled with what Gabriel said to her. Now, so she had to reason because what he was saying to her actually made no sense to her at all. No sense to her at all because Mary was a Jew. We know that she was a Jew, but to, to her, God was the kind of God who spoke, you know, from Mount Sinai. You know, like he was, he was a big God and somehow he was going to become a little baby, the savior of the world, a little baby born through her. That was, that was so a stretch for Mary. That would be almost impossible for Mary to hear. And so she's experiencing this conflict in her mind between what she's hearing from Gabriel and what she grew up believing, what her family had taught her, what her friends believed. And she's not just rolling with her feelings here. She's thinking about it too. She's critically thinking about it. And, and I love this. She's asking questions. In Luke 1.34, it says, so how will this be? How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. And, and what I love here is, it, we can tell, it's not this proud, cynical remark, but she's actually requesting information from the angel. She, and she's willing to listen. And, and this is what the angel says you know, later on in verse 37. It says, no word from God will ever fail. Ooh. Literally, nothing is impossible with God. Oh, this is, I mean, we would not have this if not for Mary doubting, if not for her questioning. I love this. And there is, there's a kind of doubt that God rewards. And, and think about Zechariah. I mean, Zechariah doubted too in the presence of Gabriel just six months before. And what happened to him? He was mute. <laughs> he was, the Gabriel made him mute, took away his voice until the baby was born. There's a kind of doubt that God does, just despises, and there's a kind of doubt that he really blesses. Now, some of us, we throw up walls, right? We throw up doubt as a wall so that we don't really have to inquire any further. We never investigate as to why there is so many people around us that say that they have a personal relationship with Jesus and that it's making a difference in their lives. We just go, eh, that's just a little too hard to believe. I don't know about that. And we just don't inquire any further. But on the other hand, there are folks like Mary who say, you know what? I've got some real doubts, and I'm struggling. I'm struggling with this thing called faith. But their doubt is not used as a wall. It's used as a springboard. 
It's used as a springboard to cause them to investigate further, to ask more questions, to dig in with greater intensity, to examine, inquire, to critically think. So we see this wonderful response, and then we see that she, her, her actual response to, to Gabriel is that she surrendered. And this is, this is just cool. Luke 1.38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be done to me according to your word. Boy, <laughs> this is her first response. It, it, her first response is to just simply humble herself. And she actually calls herself a handmaiden or a slave with no will of her own. Uh, that's, that's, that's pretty, uh, that's a high bar, man. Eugene Peterson puts it this way in the message. He says, she says, yes, I see it all now. I am the Lord's maid, ready to serve. Wow. Now, there's a spiritual discipline that's been known in the church for over a thousand years, and Richard Foster, in his book, The Celebration of Discipline, defines this, this discipline of submission, submission, as this. It's the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get your way. Mm. That obsessive demand that things go the way, they want them, the way we want them to is one of those great bondages in our human society today. People will spend weeks and months and years in a perpetual stew because of something not going the way they wanted it to. We fuss and we fume and we get mad about it and even some people get an ulcer over it as though our lives hang on this very issue. I mean, look at the arguments and fights that we get into today. We dig in and we defend ridiculous points that honestly we don't really believe in, <laughs> but we're arguing fervently for it because we just don't, we just can't stand the idea of giving in to somebody else. Well, you know that your happiness and my happiness actually doesn't depend on actually getting what we want out of life. One of the best kept secrets about happiness is that you can be happy even if life doesn't go according to plan. <laughs> a monk told this story about a time a visitor came to his monastery and looking for purpose and meaning in life. And the monk said to the visitor, well, if you seek truth, then there's one thing that you must have in your life above all else. And the visitor said, oh, I know what it is. I know if I, if I want to find truth, then I have to have this overwhelming passion for truth. And the monk said, no, actually, in order to find truth, you must have the willingness to admit that you may be wrong. Can we admit that we might not know what's actually best for us? And I think whenever we stop finally insisting on our own way, whenever we stop demanding that things in life work out the way we want them to, and we actually and just simply say, God, I'm going to choose to do your will in this situation. I'm going to let you have your way in my life. Boy, what do we find? We actually find that we're freer. We actually find that we feel lighter, that there's more peace inside, that we feel more hopeful and whole. And that's so contrary to what the world tells us. The world says to be free, to really be free, you gotta just you know, throw off everybody trying to tell you what to do all the time. Just do what you want, right? And that's the opposite of the kingdom of God. God says, follow me and you'll find freedom. Now, submission is not, and I love this, I really love this, submission is not a dumb resignation to the fates. Oh, well, well, I guess it's just this is how my life turned out, just gotta do what I gotta do. Mary-like submission comes after wrestling with God. Mm. Mary-like submission comes after, after questioning God. 
It is totally appropriate to pray and wrestle and argue with God about the issues in our life and the way that our life is turning out. What matters to God is that we come to him as we are. What matters to God is our heart. And I think in God's presence is the best place, the best place to talk about that stuff. That's what God wants. I mean, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus's example. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he repeatedly asked that the cup of God's wrath be removed from him. If there's any other way, Lord, take this cup from me. If there's any other way other than going to the cross, Lord, please allow me to go that way. And and Mary says almost exactly the same thing as Jesus does. Okay, Lord, I didn't choose this path for my life, but since you did, Lord, let it be. And it's the same as the statement of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that day. Not my will, but yours be done. So we see this message, and we see Mary's really incredible response. But what is the reality of this different kind of love for us? Just look at culture for a second. <clears throat> look at culture. I mean, it is, love is one of those things that we elevate, right? It's one of the big ones up there near pleasure and comfort. And I mean, love is just one of those things we're supposed to expect out of this world. I mean, it's sung about. All you need is love. Dun, dun. I mean, right? There's some epic, really good love songs out there. I mean, good songs. Uh, and there's, I mean, there's, it's written about. Look at all literature. Look at literature. I mean, a lot of those common themes is love. And it's acted out. Anybody, you know, Christmas, Hallmark movies? Mm, yeah. I mean, they're like all about love, right? They're all about love. But those idealistic stories can do a number, a number on our psyche, can it? It can do a number on our expectations we have in this world. That's really our reality. It's just so much different. Sure, it's a universal longing and something that we all desire, actually something that's supposed to point us to the Lord and our need for Him, but, but our experience of love honestly is lacking. And Brene Brown says this, she said, when you ask someone about love, they tell you about heartbreak. And when you ask people about belonging, they'll tell you about the most excruciating examples of being excluded. And when you ask people about connection, the stories they tell me are about disconnection. Now, the secular world, I mean, especially the scientific secular world, says um, this world is all there is. There's no soul, no spirit. There's just a bunch of chemicals in the human brain. But what do we know? We know that love preexisted the world. We know that love created the world. And we know that love is redeeming the world. The love that created the world and us looks at the world and us and says, I love you. He wrote himself, Jesus wrote himself into the story, himself into the story. And I want you to look for a moment at some of his sub-characters, some of his supporting cast in this scene. Look at the people he chose. Look at the people he chose. Now, Mary is the first person in history to hear that God's plan of salvation was wrapped up in the person named Jesus. The Old Testament prophets knew that God would one day send a Messiah to save the world, and certainly people who lived during the Old Testament era and trusted that, trusted in God's future plan to save the world, were saved. 
But during the Old Testament era, no one knew who the Savior or Messiah would be until Mary, an unwed teenage girl, was told of God's plan first. Consider this, the first person to hold the newborn Christ, the first person to touch the newly risen Christ, however briefly, God placed himself in a woman's care when he came to earth, entrusting women to announce his resurrection when he came back to life. The birth, the death, the resurrection. Just think about it. Mary Magdalene, I mean, she was a woman. She was a, not only a woman, but she was, she's like a former mental patient too. I mean, she's the one he sends out to tell everybody that he just rose from the dead, the first one to hear the news and to touch the risen Lord. The Annunciation, what we just talked about through a moment again, the poor unwed teenage girl, not someone in their 30s, not someone in their 60s, or a teenage girl. The kids that are back in that room over there, right? A teenage girl. We know intellectually that women in that day were oppressed. We know that. We know they were marginalized. What we also know is that their, their uh, testimony wasn't even permissible in court. And we say, well, you know, we're past all that. We're in the 21st century. I mean, we're past all that. But God, look at what he's doing. He's deliberately using people that the world despises. He is intentionally using and working with people the world despises. Christmas means the end of saying this. Uh, There's that kind of person, or there's those people. Now, we don't despise women anymore, hopefully, (laughs) but we despise somebody. We do. We might not be racist, but boy, we despise racists, don't we? We do. And, and we, we would not call ourselves a bigot. We're not bigots, but boy, there's always somebody in the world where you go, you know what, they're the problem with the world today. It's the hipsters. No. <laughs> they're the problem with the world today. You know, and, and there's always somebody that we're pointing our finger at. And whatever political party that we despise or whatever um, race or class. Hmm. But Christmas is the end of all that. Christmas is the end of all that. We need to pray and say, God, would you show us how you see, not only see, but how much you value those people, right? Because the people that are saved are not the people who have risen up and become all that they've needed to be so that they could deserve salvation. No, salvation comes to those who are, who are realizing how weak and needy they are for a savior, That's that's salvation. Therefore, there's no difference between them and us. No difference. And this changes the way that we relate to people, doesn't it? Not just how he sees them, but that he values them. John 13, 34 through 35, it says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We say, well, this person doesn't deserve to be helped or be loved because they have bad motives or they're not a good person. And Jesus says, well, you didn't deserve to be loved. (laughs) You didn't deserve it. But love them as I have loved you. And if you're not convicted by these words, then maybe we need to think about this, this Christmas story again. He says, as I have loved you. You know, the the place where I've been the most humbled and where I've been taught the most about love 
is in the context of small groups. And it's not what I would have expected. And, and it's been the invitation of the Lord for, for me to make myself vulnerable and actually get to know people in my small group and not just show up and do a nice little tidy Bible study and then leave, but to actually ask people to pray for me <laughs> and say, I need prayer. I can't do this without you guys. That's, that's hard to need others. And yet that's the context that God has probably taught me the most about love. And, and I have one brief, but precious story about one of those moments. There was a girl, we'll call her Sarah. There was a girl in our group that uh, we were hosting at the time and leading the group, the small group at the time, and, and we never knew when Sarah was going to show up. Uh, she was just real sporadic in her attendance, and, and uh, I just remember um, it being hard whenever she was there because she had some, she had some disabilities, but it, but mainly she was just really sensitive and, and it took the slightest things to kind of set her off and, and to the point where it would be a real disruption. And I'd usually, every time she'd come, I'd have to take her out, you know, the other, the other room and talk to her and calm her down and, and pray with her. And, and, and I remember, I remember what I thought the second or third time I saw her show up at my small group and I'm, I'm over across the room and she walks in and I, I thought, oh no, not her. And boy, the Lord just convicted me right away. And this red flag, and I know it wasn't me because it's not how I talk to myself. <laughs> but he's like, Heather, you don't know. You don't know if she's the biggest blessing that just walked in the room. She could be an angel. You don't know how she is meant, how my purposes for her and who she is might be the biggest blessing for your small group and for you. And I, I remember just really being convicted and, and, and how the Lord started to pour his divine agape love into my heart for this girl. And, and, and my protective uh, side came out and I just started to realize how much she was a blessing to our group. And, and years, I could tell you even years later now going, she was. She absolutely was a blessing to our group and to me. And I'll give you an example. So every time that Sarah would come to group, I'd always have her in my prayer group at the end of small group. And we were a small little group of, of girls. And, and we were all in our uh, early 20s. I was just a newly married, like literally that year. And I remember she would always be in my prayer and end up always praying for me. And I don't know why. I don't know if I planned it that way. But she'd always pray for me. And every time she'd pray for me, she'd go, and Lord Jesus... I pray for Heather's womb, and I pray you would just, you allow her to get pregnant right now. And then I'm like, whoa, not right now. What's going on? Not only right now, but like, as in like, I, I was newly married. That was like the last thing on my radar. I'm like, I'm enjoying this season. I don't, and the girls in my group would just snicker and laugh and be like, she's pregnant, you get pregnant. And they just thought it was funny, and I didn't. But, <laughs> but, but she would always pray for that, always pray for that. And it was kind of a joke, but it was really sweet. And I, and I would go, oh, no, who knows how the Lord's using it. And so I get fast forward five years, and I am pregnant. I mean, I am two weeks overdue pregnant. And I, it's the end of September. It's hot. I'm just like a bear to deal with at that point. And, and I'm laying in bed in my pajamas, and I hear a knock at the door. And I'm like, well, who could that be? There's really not many people that just come knock at your door, right? Usually they, they want something. And and so I open the curtain, and, and there's Sarah. And I'm like, oh, but, but usually whenever she would knock at my door, it was because she needed something. And, and for whatever reason, I, I didn't have anything to give, and so I just went back to bed. I was like, oh, she'll be fine, you know. 
and uh, I don't need to be her savior. And you know, I'm convincing myself of like the justification for why I didn't need to go downstairs, waddle my way downstairs, you know, and get clothes on. And and I, at the moment I got back in bed, again, it was just the Lord. God used her so much in my life. And He goes, Heather, out of all the people in your life, who do you think would be more excited about seeing you pregnant? And I thought, oh, no, I just missed it. I just missed it. I missed, and I, ran, I literally jumped off the bed and opened it. She'd already gone. And I prayed, I prayed. I remember praying right by that window going, God, please, if there's any way, I don't have any way to contact her. Is there any way that you could bring her back? And two days later, she knocked again. And boy, I was down those stairs like you wouldn't have thought I was pregnant at all. I was so excited. And bless her heart, she was already turned around and walking away, expecting that I wouldn't answer the door. But I opened the door. And I go, Sarah! I go, look! (laughs) And she flailed around, and she saw my belly. And she goes, praise Jesus! screamed it at the top of her lungs, and she proceeded to kneel down and grab my belly and start singing to my belly. And the Lord just said, how do you know that I have not used her her prayers, that this baby, that my four-year-old little girl isn't here because of that precious woman praying for me over and over again? God loves to flip the tables, doesn't he? He loves to flip the tables and show us how, how what we would say is, is you know, well, this, this person, you know, isn't deserving or, or they're, they're, you know, less than. And God's like, no, you're less than. Watch them be the blessing in your life. Oh boy, Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, he says this, Christ's love is so much greater than anyone can ever know. But I pray that you will be able to know that love. And that's my prayer. That is my prayer for us today, that we would be able to know the kind of love that, that God has for us. When you yourself sense the love of God, when, you've, when for yourself you, you sense being valued and, and you sense the fact that, gosh, I was worth dying for, it is so much easier to give it away because uh, we can't love out of emptiness. We can't. It'll always be for a selfish motive, always. Only God can give us that kind of love, I believe. Only out of fullness can we love others. And we don't get that kind of fullness by just believing in a concept of God. We get that fullness by being in his presence, by coming to know who he is through his word, coming to trust him and take, take risks and watch him come through for us time and time again. And, oh God, wow, he really is real. And sometimes we need those moments. We need those times to risk, to see him come through for us. I, I, I think it's worth remembering this Christmas season that, that God lost his glory and that Jesus himself, he lost his life for us so that we can know him personally. God is, is, doesn't want to just be a concept that we hold on, on the back burner of our lives. He wants to be somebody upfront and personal with us, in relationship with us. So how will we be receiving this, this incredible message of love breaking in at Christmas, of what Jesus did just to get near you. So I want to just, uh, just close our time and just have, our, have some ministry time where we do what Mary did, right? Now, she heard a message. You've heard a message today. 
But there's one more message. There's a message that God is speaking to your heart right now. There's things he's doing, and I want to give us a chance to respond like Mary did. So why don't you go ahead and stand? And what we do here in the vineyard is we have a time of ministry time. 